Our Old Testament lesson this morning is found in Isaiah chapter 9. We're reading verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joys. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot, the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. As we come to your word this morning, God, we ask that your spirit will give us light and understanding. Take these great and exhausted, exalted truths and drive them down deep in our hearts and minds. We ask this morning that you will speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. After the experience several weeks ago of not being able to read my Bible very clearly, this past week I ordered a giant large print Bible. And so it is very large here in front of me, but the problem is, is I don't know my way around it. I don't know where anything is on the page after using my former Bible for the better part of a decade, but eight-point font just doesn't get it done anymore. (laughs) So 13 is just fine, but we're going to see how this goes today. First sermon with the new Bible. (laughs) During my high school years, I was introduced to the writing of Ernest Hemingway, and it was there that I found some lifelong interest in uh, the writing of, of Hemingway and his existentialist style. One of my favorite short stories that he tells is titled, The Capital of the World, And it is in this short story that he critiques the glorification of bullfighting culture in Spain. To capture the critique, he writes the story of two young waiters, Enrique and Paco, who after work one evening decide that they would simulate a bullfight in the kitchen. Knives were strapped to a chair A tablecloth was used as the red cape, and the bull, propelled by Enrique, charged across the kitchen. However, in that crucial moment when Paco was to move the cape and elude the horns, his femoral artery is severed by the knife. Paco bleeds out on the floor of the kitchen. 
Then Hemingway writes this, he died, as the Spanish phrase had it, full of illusions. See, despite his tragic and his silly demise, Paco remained full of illusions and dreams of bullfighting and bullfighting glory, that it was deep within him. And it is this very same critique that many thoughtful non-Christians launch at Christianity, saying that we too live on a mistaken and a misguided illusion, that we too will die full of our illusions. Because what we have hoped in is just simply not true. It's important for us to consider this today as we trace that story of God's revelation. Because we read a passage in Isaiah 9 that is filled with hope. As well-intentioned as we may be, many of those Non-Christians would say, yes, this is just another fool's errand. Friedrich Nietzsche, the great German philosopher and critic, wrote this, that hope is the worst of all evils, for it prolongs the suffering of man. He would say that Christianity actually doesn't do anything to make the world better, it makes it worse. And so as we come to Isaiah 9 this morning, It's important for us to ask and to answer the question once again and to come at it from a fresh angle. Why exactly is it that we as Christians hope? In a world filled with gloom and dread, in a world filled with anguish and darkness, with despair and sadness at every corner and at every turn, why do Christians persist in hope? And as we come to this chapter, well-worn, well-known in Christian circles, we see that this hope is based in and it's rooted in an intervention by God. And so briefly, we'll look at two aspects of this intervention. First, it's surety and certainness. And secondly, it's graciousness. So first, it is a sure and certain intervention. As you read through Isaiah 9, it's quite easy to miss something that's extraordinarily odd. Obviously, Isaiah is speaking about the future because chapter 8 has actually cast the present, speaking to the people who lived in the land of Naphtali, who also lived in the land of Zebulun, who lived to the west of the Jordan all the way to the sea, what was known as Galilee. This was the region of northern Israel that was on the very border of the nations of Syria and Assyria. And we know from the historical record that in 732 that this land was devastated. It was destroyed. It was vanquished by the great Assyrian armies. And so we have here a place that is now being, there's an announcement being made. There's an announcement being spoken into all of that darkness, that there was going to be light that shines. But the interesting thing to note about this passage that speaks of something that is going to happen 
is that Isaiah, throughout these seven verses, actually uses the past tense. If you were to look at this in the original language, you would see that he uses the perfect tense referring to something that has happened, despite the fact that this is still a future event. Grammarians call it the prophetic perfect. And it was used in biblical literature to indicate the certainty of a future event. It is locked down. It is certain. This is going to play out. And it's critical for us to note here that Isaiah is not certain because there was some steady path of improvement that existed. It's not in some sense of progress that he's building on, that he says something great is going to happen. Things are not turning around, even if ever so slowly. That's not what causes Isaiah to hope. It's just not the case here. Isaiah speaks into a situation, his own words, gloom and anguish, that this land, these northern tribes have been devastated. And in chapter 8, they actually say that God has hidden his face from us, that he's turned his face away. And friends, it's into that gloom and anguish that this certain and this sure word is spoken. The promise of transformation, even of joy, comes into all of that darkness. And so why the confidence? The source of the confidence becomes very plain for us when we look in verse 7. It's there that we're told that there's going to be a child born. There is going to be a son who is given. He is going to establish the government. The government will fall upon his shoulders. And because on his shoulders, our burdens will be relieved. But then we learn the location of his throne, that he is going to sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom. And it is the small reference to David and his kingdom introduced here in verse 7 that draws us into the larger biblical narrative, the unfolding story of God, the promises that were made to David, promises that were built on a covenant sworn to Moses, promises which were built on a covenant sworn to Abraham, that God was going to be the king of all the earth, that he was going to bless the nations of the earth. And as we read in Psalm 132, the promise to David is that one of his sons would lead this great work of God to the nations and sit on his throne forever. And so we ask, why this confidence? Why does Isaiah speak of a future event as if it has already happened? Why does he refer to the future in the past tense? And the answer comes back very clearly. That the confidence is not related to any human activity. It's not related to any human possibility. But it's related to the covenant of God. And to the character that sustains that covenant. That God has spoken a promise. And that God does not lie. And God will not forsake that promise. And he will not forget that promise. And he will not fail to bring that promise to fruition. Friends, this is the basis of Christian confidence and of Christian hope that God has made a word of promise 
and he will not fail to bring it about. It's sure and it's certain. And this is what has sustained Christian hope. The reason that we can speak about future things that we have not yet seen. The reason that we can speak about them as past realities. is because God is the one who is behind all of this. Making promises, swearing his faithfulness. That he will bring them about. That they will come to pass. And so this hope, it's sure and it's certain. But second, we also see about this hope and this intervention that is promised by God. Also that it's gracious. Isaiah says in verse 2 that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This is a promise that God will intervene in the midst of their loss. That light will break out in the darkness. But this is not all that Isaiah tells us. It's not simply that light will penetrate the darkness. But the light takes on a further definition as the passage unfolds. We discover that the light is a metaphor. That the light promised to us is actually a person. In verse 6, we read of the child who is to be born. And then we see that he is a son who is to be given. And then we see four names that are applied to him in the midst of his rule. These four names simply followed the ancient Near Eastern custom of being a king being given throne names for his rule. And so we learn that this son is to be a wonderful counselor. And what that means is that he's to be the wonder of a strategist and a planner who will orchestrate an amazing victory for his people, a wonderful counselor. We see that this son is to be mighty God, literally. God is a warrior who fights on behalf of his own people. He is born, yet he is God, a mighty warrior. He is a child. And yet he is mighty God, introducing us to the mystery of the incarnation. This son will be an everlasting father. And to call Jesus father is simply to use the ancient Near Eastern custom of the king of the nation who was ruling over the people royally, that he was known as the father of the nation. And so this king would be the royal father of the nation, ruling over them and blessing them. And we learn that this son will be the prince of peace. That is that his government will be so effective that he will establish justice and he will establish peace. There will be wholeness and well-being in every aspect of human life. There would be flourishing. And so it's no surprise for us in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 4 and verses 12 through 17. After Jesus works through the desert, saying no to the temptations of the devil. Then as his public ministry is being introduced, it is these very verses that Matthew uses to introduce him, saying that the fulfillment, the time has come, that this light promised who would break into the darkness, this light promised to intervene is none other than Jesus, that he is the wonderful counselor, 
the counselor who comes as a strategist and planner, who will orchestrate an amazing victory for his people, that he is the mighty God, a warrior who will fight on behalf of his own, God himself in our midst, working and fighting on our behalf, that he is the everlasting father, the great royal benefactor of his people who reigns over them, that he is the prince of peace who comes to bring justice and equity, shalom for all the nations of the earth, wholeness and well-being, the great light that comes into the darkness is none other than God himself in human time, incarnate in Jesus. And so it's crucial for us to recognize what is happening here. In the midst of the anguish and the gloom, the despair and the darkness, what is God doing in answer to all of that? Please note that God's response to our despair and to our darkness is not to give us a to-do list that will incline him to be gracious towards us if we fulfill it. Please note that God's response to our despair and to our darkness is not to teach us a list of techniques that will enhance our spirituality and allow us to draw near to him, raising ourselves up to the heavens. And please note that God's response to our despair and to our darkness is to not to give us a project that by our industry and by our ingenuity and by our talent that we can bring about the healing of the nations. This is not what Isaiah foresees. It's not the vision that he has. No, God's response to our gloom and to our darkness, and to our despair. What we see here in Isaiah 9 is all the activity is on his side. And friends, this is where Christianity so radically differentiates itself from the other religions and the philosophies available in our world. The solution in Christianity to human gloom and darkness, to the despair we experience, because of a world fractured and torn apart by human sin. The solution is not awakening our better side and becoming the best expression of ourselves. It's not to awaken your human agency to make yourself better. But the solution is found in directing us to a source of hope based on an intervention that happens for us. It is about God's activity in sending this child who is born, this son who is given, this one who comes to bear the weight of the government upon his own shoulders. And you'll note that that promise in verse six, that the weight of the government would be on his shoulder compares nicely with what happens in verse four. Because we are told in verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The day of Midian, a reference to the book of Judges, when Gideon is delivered from his enemies miraculously by God, that there was going to be a miraculous intervention by the wonderful counselor that would break the yoke of the burden, that would break the staff lying upon the shoulder that would break the rod of the oppressor. 
the government falling upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ, him taking that a burden, taking all of that responsibility, lifts the responsibility and the burden from us that this God intervenes for you. He comes in personal form as a human being in order to deliver us. And in verse 5, we see that the boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumults and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. Here we have a promise that the implements of war and the stains of war will be undone. That God, through his son, will erase the stains and the scars of a broken world, eviscerating them and removing them from memory. Friends, this is the gracious intervention that our God is the one who takes up activity on our behalf. It is a gracious invitation because all that is necessary is done from his side. That yes, human despair, human gloom, the contempt, all the sadness, that yes, it's affirmed that this is part of life in a broken world. But our God has not simply left us to make the best of it. He has intervened. He has entered in. It's sure and certain and it's gracious because it's for you. And friends, this leaves us one response. Seeing this sure and certain hope, seeing this gracious intervention that our God has worked in his son, knowing that there is one final gracious intervention that is sure and certain as well when the son returns to make all things right. In between those two advents, one response that we find in verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And friends, this is the response that we are invited into, is to rejoice in these great things, that the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace has come, and he will come again. And that is sure and certain, that he has won the victory in his death and in his resurrection. Surely and certainly he has won, and he will win, and he will consummate and bring all of his good purposes for the world. Ravished as it is by sin, he will bring those to fruition and to fulfillment. And so we join in that great victory, even ahead of it, rejoicing, sharing in the joy of the one who has won, sharing with the mighty, the wonderful counselor, sharing with the mighty God, sharing with the everlasting Father, sharing with the Prince of Peace, the spoils of victory that belong to him. Because, friends, Christian hope is not simply well-wishing. It's not just hoping, wishing that reality would be different. No, Christian hope is strong because it's built on a covenantal promise. Christian hope is strong because it's built upon history and intervention. Our Lord Jesus entering into time, bearing our sins, bearing our shame, overcoming all sin and death. And Christian hope looks towards that great 
bright fruition. Light penetrating the darkness, bringing forth conditions of peace and righteousness and equity. And so find yourself rejoicing. Find yourself believing, knowing that this hope is not an illusion. This hope is not a fool's errand. This hope is the healing of the nations. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning, we recognize that you are good and gracious. And that in your wise plan, you have sworn covenants and made promises, revealing yourself through time to your people. And you made a promise to Abraham that he would be a great nation and a blessing to all the nations of the earth. You forwarded and advanced that plan through Moses and the people of Israel. And you made a promise to David, bringing that promise to fulfillment in your son, Jesus Christ that he would reign over the nations of the earth, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess his name. And Father, we thank you that our Lord Jesus is the one who intercedes for us, that he is our advocate and mediator, and that in him we can come to you and make our prayers known. And so we begin this morning by praying for all of our governing authorities, particularly for our city council and mayor, our state legislature and our governor, our courts and also our president, asking that you endow these men and women with wisdom to govern well, guiding our nation in paths of justice and righteousness. Incline their hearts to you. And Father, we also pray this morning for our world, asking that the nations of the earth may bow their knee, confessing faith in the name that is above every name, Jesus Christ, draw all people everywhere to believe in him. Send forth laborers into his harvest, preaching your word. We particularly ask that you bless our ministry partner, Gethsemane Garden Christian Center, praying for the students and for their Christian witness as they return home over the school break. Protect them, Father. Provide for every one of their needs. We ask that you will also provide additional sponsors with over 700 children at GGCC, continue to open doors to sustain this great work on Mamfungo Island. And merciful Father, we remember this morning that you are the God of all comfort. We pray for those who are sick, we pray for those who grieve, and we pray for those who suffer in our community this morning. We particularly remember Vicki Burke facing pancreatic cancer, Sue Forsyth, as she continues to struggle with back pain. Elizabeth Garnett, living with stage four brain cancer. Barb Day, facing resurgent cancer. Gar Garganius, also struggling with cancer. Jim Tyson, recovering from back surgery. Wayne Noble, and for Bill Yates, struggling with Parkinson's disease. We pray for their families and for all their caretakers as well. We also pray for all the unspoken requests that trouble our congregation today. We ask you to extend comfort to each in need, reminding them that nothing in all of creation can separate them from your love in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
This morning, we also give thanks for the gift of new life, praying for our mothers who are expecting. We ask that you will uphold Abigail Waddell and Hannah Westman, giving them good health and allowing their little ones to thrive. Bless these little ones all the days of their lives. And Father, we remember that our Lord Jesus took up children in his arms and blessed them. And so we remember the children and youth of this congregation today, asking that you will bless them as they grow up in the knowledge of you. Forgive their sins, write your law upon their hearts, regenerate them by your spirit. Grant them to delight in you, finding life and light and hope through Jesus Christ, the child who was born, the son who is given. These things we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.